So we are beginning a new series in the Gospel of Mark. And one of the questions that is going to be throughout this gospel, and one of the really the questions for us today, is who is Jesus Christ? So the past 2,000 years, our world has debated over and over again the identity of who Christ is. Was he just a great religious teacher, a spiritual guru, a Jewish revolutionary and martyr? Or was he something more? Our, our culture, our country, has a pretty interesting relationship with Jesus, to say the least. And I think it, our relationship and kind of how we think about Jesus can be reflected in some of the images we have of Jesus. So, so here's a well-known picture of Jesus. Okay? You, you may have seen this in a painting or, or hanging in a museum or something. I'm not entirely sure where it comes from, but it's a pretty well-known picture. I think a lot of, especially in this country, in the West, when we kind of picture Jesus in our minds, probably are influenced by this image. And there's really nothing particularly bad about this image. I mean, it's very reverential and respectful of Jesus. It sort of paints him in this, this light that says, hey, this guy is, you know, profound and noble and in some ways kind of pretty, which is a little weird. But anyway, it, it, there, there is this just this, you know, awe and reverence to who Jesus is. At the same time, Notice that Jesus is, man, he's got really nice hair and his beard is perfectly sort of trimmed and he's got really nice clothes on and he looks pretty white and European. So, you know, it's probably not the most accurate portrait. What also strikes me about this picture, does this guy look like the kind of guy that would go and turn over tables in the temple and pick fights with the Pharisees? Not really. So we can look at this picture and say, okay, yeah, it's, it's reverential, but probably not pretty accurate. Here's another fairly well-known image of Jesus. Maybe you've seen people wearing this on a t-shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. And what is the sentiment here? That Jesus is my friend. Jesus is someone that I have a personal relationship with. And we talk a lot about that in our evangelical world. Hey, Jesus, well, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. So again, there's an aspect of this that's not bad, but this is sort of taken way too extreme. It's making sort of Jesus out to be this cool dude. Like, it's cool to follow Jesus. It's cool to have Jesus as my homeboy. And so we, we sort of stretch the nature of having a relationship with Christ into maybe even some irreverent uh, irreverent ways. This is probably my favorite picture or image of Jesus in the sense that it captures the American Jesus the best. There. (laughs) Here you have Jesus, again, with with some of the kind of traditional religious iconography. He's wearing a robe, kind of, you know, has has a long flowing hair and the beard, and so we we kind of resonate with, hey, that's that's the Jesus that we have in our mind. But then there's also, you know, the smiling Jesus, The one that's going to, you know, point his finger and say, hey, how you doing, buddy? And the problem with this picture here, again, is is it takes an aspect and an element of who Christ is, the friend of sinners, someone that we have a relationship with, and it strips away the glory and the majesty and the heart of who Christ is. And what these images reveal is that often underneath our answers to the question, who is Jesus, we have agendas. We have personal agendas. We have religious and social and political agendas. We, we want to create a Jesus who fits 
our world, our life, and even in the church, we do this. We take Jesus and we comfortably put him into our life and say, hey, Jesus, I want you to sort of just validate me, help me do the things that I want to do, help me fulfill all my dreams, and be for me. This is what Boston University religious professor Stephen Prothero says about how we treat Jesus in the United States. In the book of Genesis, God creates humans in his own image. In the United States, Americans have created Jesus over and over again in theirs. The problem with the American Jesus is that it makes Jesus more a pawn than a king. Pushed around in a complex game of cultural and countercultural chess, sacrificed here for this cause and there for another. And so we create a Jesus in our own image. We create a Republican Jesus or a Democrat Jesus or Jesus the free market capitalist or Jesus the social justice champion. We create Jesus the guy who would accept everybody as they are or Jesus the fire and brimstone preacher. We create a Jesus who is this stoic dude who never got angry and always always had this sort of emotional calm about him. Or we create Jesus the homeboy, the friend, the life coach, who just wants to make me happy and help me fulfill all my dreams. Over and over and over again, we construct a Jesus that fits our needs and fits our agendas. Contrast this with the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark is a true account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And in in the Gospel, we see Jesus doing some incredible things. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He, he calms a storm. He multiplies bread and fish. He forgives sin. He confronts corrupt religious leaders. And he ultimately lays down his life for sinners. But in all of that, Jesus shows that he cannot be pinned down and hemmed in by our agendas and our little kingdoms. In fact, throughout the gospel, we see Jesus constantly smashing expectations, constantly opposing those who would try to use Jesus for their own agenda. See, Jesus doesn't submit and follow our kingdoms and our agendas. Rather, he upsets our agendas and he topples our kingdoms. And he does all of that to call us into something greater and something more beautiful and more profound. So that for the next 13 weeks, we're going to journey through the gospel of Mark. And for all of us, I want God's word to cut through all of the cultural baggage that we carry when it comes to Christ. I want God's word to cut through the ways that you and I have constructed our own Jesus for, that fits our own agenda. And, and I want a Jesus who will topple our kingdoms and bring us to a place where we submit to his kingship and his authority. So for those of you that that profess faith in Christ, uh, may may we see more clearly the Jesus that we follow. May may we turn away from our agendas and our kingdoms and may we come to a place where we follow Jesus more and more obediently, full of more and more faith. And for those of you that do not know Christ, again, I want God's word to cut through the baggage that you may carry I want God's word to cut through the ways that that you've sort of constructed Jesus in your mind that allows you to keep him at an arm's distance. I want him to upset your agenda and topple your kingdom in order that you may turn from your sin and follow him. 
that you may submit to his good and loving authority and find life and joy and purpose in him. Well, that is my hope and that is my prayer. And this morning, our focus is going to be on Mark 1, 1 through 15. So Mark begins his gospel with this clear, direct statement about who Jesus is. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here's Mark's thesis statement, his main point. This, this statement sets the trajectory for the entire story that he's going to tell. Mark writes this gospel to declare to us, to declare to the world, Jesus is the Son of God. But it's not just to declare. Mark is not just stating that Jesus is the Son of God. He's also going to tell us why that matters. The significance of that Jesus is the Son of God. See, Mark calls his story the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the word gospel, for many, many of you know, that means good news. And for us who have been in the church, that word is sort of just like Christianese. It's just language that we sort of throw around and understand. And it's almost become exclusively Christian. But in the time that Mark was writing, in the Roman and Greek culture of the first century, the term gospel wasn't a religious term. The term gospel had to do with the good news of military victory. See, when a king or an army won a great victory or battle, someone would run from the battlefield to the city and announce, hey, we won. We're victorious. Things are different because we won. And that person would be heralding a gospel, a good news. So the term gospel carries with it this idea of victory. This great victory has won, a victory that has changed reality, that has changed the course of history. And so what Mark is telling us is that within this story of the Son of God, there is a great victory. This is a story of victory. This is a story that the Son of God is going out and winning a battle. And so Mark is going to tell us, well, what kind of battle? What is the significance of this victory? And what is, it, what is the significance of the fact that it is the Son of God who is fighting this battle? And then in verses 2 through 15, there is a prologue to Mark's gospel. And so if you are familiar with literary terms and how stories are structured, a prologue is sort of a background. It's sort of a pre-introduction to the actual action and narrative of the story. And what prologues do is they give you sort of background information that is important for you to understand the narrative. Those of you that are Star Wars nerds, and I know there's a lot of you in this room, think of the simple prologues at the beginning of every Star Wars movie, right? You have sort of the background story before we get to the main action. And that is what verses 2 through 15 serve as. Before Jesus begins his ministry, before Jesus interacts with his disciples or with the sick or with the demon-possessed or the religious leaders, we get this prologue. And in this prologue, Mark is going to give us some important background information about who Jesus is, information that is going to carry throughout this entire gospel. He's also going to introduce some themes that are going to carry out through the entire gospel. And so very briefly, here's what I want to do as a way to go through this prologue, but also introduce sort of the rest of our series. I want to briefly look at the identity, the aspects of the identity of Jesus that Mark lays out for us, as well as sort of the, the key themes that are associated with that. <clears throat> then I want to reflect on the purpose of this prologue, talk a little bit more about what Mark is doing in this prologue, and then finally, just talk about what is our response? What should our response be? So, very quickly, 
the identity of Jesus that is laid out in this prologue and some of the key themes. There are five truths here in the prologue that Mark hints at and sort of begins to lay out. He doesn't fully uh, explain them. He doesn't fully unveil them. He just begins to hint at them. The first is that Jesus is the promised son of God. And so in verses 2 through 15, we, we get these short, interconnected episodes that all reveal some aspect of who Jesus is. And the first episode begins with a quote from the prophets as a means to actually introduce John the Baptist. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So this quote is actually taken from two prophetic writings. The first part of it is from Malachi 3, and the rest of it is from Isaiah 43, hence the mention of Isaiah there. Now what this is, is these are two prophetic utterances being brought together to proclaim one truth. And New Testament authors regularly did this to show that the prophets of the Old Testament, while they spoke at different times, under different circumstances, all had the same message. And so weaving together prophetic voice, declaring one thing, that there was a Messiah coming, that God was going to save and renew and restore. And so here we have a prophetic voice talking about the coming of the Messiah. However, these verses aren't talking directly about the Messiah. Rather, they're talking about a prophet who would come before the Messiah. So what does that have to do with Jesus being the promised son of God? Well, if you read in the Old Testament, the prophets regularly said this, one of the signs that you should look for, for the Messiah, that the Messiah has come, is that there will be a prophet that goes before him and declares, hey, the Messiah is here. Make straight the pathway of the Lord. And so a key marker, a key sign, a key way that the people knew that the Messiah had come was that this prophet, this forerunner had come before. And this is what Mark is saying. Hey, this prophet, this forerunner, who is going to herald the Messiah, he's come. And it's John the Baptist. So in pointing to John the Baptist, Mark is actually pointing to the one John the Baptist points to. And John even says this, hey, look, I'm not the point here. All these prophecies, yes, there were prophecies that I was going to come, but I'm not the point. It's the one who comes after me, the one who I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not even worthy to be the lowest of the low in his household. So for Mark, pointing to John the Baptist, quoting these passages from Malachi and Isaiah as a way for him to say, hey, the Messiah has come. The forerunner has come. That prophet who would come before the Messiah has come. So now we know the, the Messiah has come. And so throughout the gospel, there is a significant theme that is in play here. How the scriptures speak of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, Jesus is going to go to battle with the religious leaders about how they understand scriptures. See, they're going to have one particular understanding of the Messiah, and Jesus is going to say, hey, guess what? If you actually understood what the scriptures teach, you would know that they point to me. He's going to show them, hey, you have twisted the scriptures. You have used your conception of the Messiah to build this idea of who the Christ would be that fits your agenda, that keeps you in power, that validates your kingdom. You're going to twist and use the scriptures to control other people. 
And Jesus is going to have none of it. He's going to challenge, he's going to undermine, he's going to undo these false notions of what the Messiah is, these false understandings of Scripture. And he's going to teach the people what God's word truly means. And so there's a consistent theme throughout the Gospel of Mark that the Scriptures point to Jesus, that the Scriptures, the Old Testament prophecies that promised that a Messiah would come point to Jesus, the promised Son of God. And so the question for us and what Jesus confronts in us and what as well is, how are we constructing our notions of who Jesus is? Where, where do we get our ideas about who Christ is? Are we getting our ideas about who Jesus is from our culture? Are we twisting and misunderstanding the scriptures to construct a Jesus that fits our, ident- our agenda and he can fit neatly in our, in our life? Here's a way to think through that. How often are you in the scriptures, meditating, praying, studying, learning, having your mind and heart shaped by the scriptures concerning who Jesus is? And how often when you're doing that, does Jesus challenge and upset your agenda in your kingdom? Look, if, if you never experienced that from Jesus, I guarantee you are constructing a Jesus in your own image. Because Jesus is constantly about undoing our selfishness, undoing our pride, undoing our sin, trying to set us free from our agendas and our kingdoms. And so we need to go to the word of God and let the word of God define Christ. Let God himself define who Jesus is. Jesus is the word made flesh. Let him define himself. We don't define him. He defines us. Second truth is that Jesus is the divine son of God. So as I said before, in quoting from Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, Mark's not only pointing to this prophesied messenger that's going to come before the Messiah, but he's also pointing to the one who comes after. And who comes after this message, this messenger? Well, let's look at what Malachi and Isaiah actually say. This is from Malachi 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And then from Isaiah, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. Who comes after this messenger? Not another man. Not another prophet. Not a religious guru. Not a revolutionary and martyr. But the Lord himself. They're going to see the Lord in the temple. They're going to see the glory of the Lord. The one coming after the messenger is God himself, divine. And so what Mark is implying here by quoting from Malachi and Isaiah is that Jesus is the divine son of God. Yes, Jesus is a man. He became human fully. But we must never forget Jesus is divine. He is God, the second person of the Trinity, And throughout the gospel, you see everyone missing this. The religious leaders, the crowds, the disciples, everyone misses the full extent of who Jesus is. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. He raises the dead. He forgives sin. He controls nature. He creates matter out of nothing. He does all the things that God himself has the power to do. And they marvel over and over and over again, but they never get it. They never catch the fact that this is God in the flesh. 
Jesus is the divine Son of God. No wonder the Pharisees went into murderous rage when Jesus declares that he is divine. No man can do that. No man has that authority, that power. And yet here is Jesus not only claiming, but backing it up. And so for us, we have to ask ourselves the question, is Jesus the divine Lord of all? Is it his authority that we submit to? Is is he the glorious and majestic king that we follow? Or have we pulled him down so far to our level that, man, he's just my homeboy. He's just my life coach. He's just the one that gives me good advice about my marriage, gives me good advice about my finances. You know, when when I need a spiritual pick-me-up, I go, hey, Jesus, tell me something positive. Give me some inspiring words. And all the while, Jesus stands as the resurrected and reigning divine son of God who all honor and power and glory and authority belong to. Look, this also speaks to the incredible salvation that we've experienced. God himself came and became a man and died for us. And so as we go throughout the gospel, we, let's let the truth that, God, that Jesus is the divine son capture our hearts and cause us to worship. The third truth is that Jesus is the powerful Son of God. And so the heart of this point is that Jesus brings a powerful salvation and healing and renewal. He's not weak and ineffectual, but the powerful Son of God. Mark makes this point clear by pointing to the power that is at work within Jesus. So in verses 7 and 8, John the Baptist tells those who are following this, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So in pointing away from himself, John is making sort of this lesser to greater argument. He says, look, I baptize with water, which is a symbol and a sign of renewal and washing and forgiveness. But one is coming who is going to baptize with the actual thing that does the renewing and the saving and the washing. I only have a symbol. One is coming who actually has the substance, the real thing, the Holy Spirit. And from that statement, Mark immediately moves us to Jesus' baptism. This is what we read. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And so here's where we see these episodes being connected. John talks about the Holy Spirit, immediately moved to Jesus' baptism, and there's a spirit descending on him. And here's what this means, that the spirit descending like a dove, this image, is Jesus' coronation as king and Messiah. The Holy Spirit is anointing him for this mission and empowering him. Remember, Jesus is a man. He became a man. He set aside his glory and set aside his own power, and he allowed himself to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus heals and casts out demons and forgives and renews and restores. And not only does he do that, he pours out his spirit on those who are his disciples. And so the good news here is that Jesus is the powerful son of God. It means that the work that he is doing isn't going to fail. The work that he is doing isn't weak and ineffectual. It is the spirit of God that is transforming in ways that nothing else can. 
And so the question for us, the challenge for us, is what power are we going to depend on? What power do we depend on to experience change? Is it our own intellect? Is it our own power? Is it our own discipline? Is it our own status, our own wealth? Is it my own righteousness and ability to perform? Like, is it all up to me? And here is Jesus saying, no, I have a power that truly will change. I have a power that will truly restore, truly forgive. And the work that I am doing, I will complete. The work that I am doing is powerful and effectual. And so we may not always see how God is working. We might not see the way that the Spirit is at work within us. But the hope of the gospel here is that Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is at work, and he's a powerful son of God. The fourth truth. Jesus is the obedient son of God. So at his baptism, when Jesus comes up out of the water, he hears the voice of God the Father. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. So on the one hand, this is an important, direct declaration of Jesus' identity. God himself, right at the beginning of the gospel, testifies that Jesus is the Son of God. Though other people are going to doubt, though he's going to be challenged, though people are going to miss his identity, God authoritatively declares, this is my Son. He is the Son of God. But there's another layer to this declaration. Notice the setting of the prologue. Where did these, the entire Verses 2 through 15, where do they take place? In the wilderness. This is an important setting and an important theme because it is in the wilderness that God does some powerfully redemptive things with his people. So if you're familiar with the Old Testament, God saves Israel out of Egypt, and where does he bring them? Into the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness that he gives them his law. It's in the wilderness that he makes them his people through covenant. It's in the wilderness that he he dwells with them. But it's also in the wilderness where Israel rebels, where Israel hardens their heart and turns away from God, where Israel chases after other gods and other idols. And so God judges them. And they wander the wilderness for 40 years before ever making it into the promised land. And so in calling Jesus to the wilderness, we have this wonderful retelling of Israel's story. Because if you read in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says that when Israel was brought out of Egypt and they passed through the Red Sea, it was their baptism. And so Jesus is called into the wilderness to be baptized. And then we see he is called into the wilderness to be tempted and tried. But where Israel failed, where the people of God fell, Jesus succeeded. He was perfectly obedient. He did not turn away from his father. He did not chase after idols. He did not sin. Over and over and over again in the gospel, we see Jesus perfectly keeps the law perfectly is obedient, perfectly loves, perfectly follows his Father's will. And you know what? He does all of that for you and me. He succeeds where we failed so that the righteousness that he earned could be ours. You see, Jesus doesn't save in the abstract. God didn't just go, well, you're all forgiven. Well, you're all hypothetically righteous. No, Jesus went out and earned righteousness for you. He actually, in history, kept the law for you. He was perfectly obedient. He was the obedient son of God. And when you follow Christ, all that righteousness that he earned is given to you as a gift. His perfect obedience 
is credited to you as if you did it. It's the wonderful good news of the gospel. It's a powerful truth that we're going to see over and over and over. Jesus is the obedient son. So the question and challenge for us, you trying to earn God's favor? Are you trying to perform for God? Do you think you can outperform Jesus who was the perfectly obedient son? Why are you trying to earn God's favor? Why are you trying to prove yourself when one has already proven himself for you? The challenge for us is are we going to rely on our own righteousness and our own performance? Are we going to rest in what Jesus has done for us? The fifth truth, Jesus is the victorious son of God. So going out to be tempted, Jesus was going to war with the powers of evil. As we read in verses 12 and 13, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And as he was in the wilderness, 40 days being tempted by Satan, and as he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So the path that Jesus walks is a path of opposition. Over and over and over again, Jesus is opposed. From the crowds to the religious leaders, the disciples themselves, Jesus is regularly challenged and opposed. But in all of that, he's victorious. He's victorious over sin. He's victorious over Satan and demonic forces. Here he goes toe-to-toe with the devil and he defeats him. Even in the midst of death, Jesus being strung up on a cross and killed, he comes out victorious over every evil power. And so the good news of the gospel The good news that Mark is writing about is that Jesus is a victorious son of God. No matter how much opposition Jesus faces, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how overwhelming it would get, when you think about this, everybody abandons Jesus. And then there he is, naked and exposed on a cross, beaten and killed. It's pretty dark. And all of that, Mark is going to tell us right here at the beginning, Jesus is victorious. He's going to overcome it all. He's going to win the decisive victory over evil for all time. There's our hope, church. There's our hope in the midst of, no matter how dark it gets. Look, I'm not a doomsday prophet. I don't like to speculate about culture because culture goes all over the place. But right now, we're living in some pretty dark times. Our faith is more and more being marginalized and even criminalized. Who knows how bad it is going to get? But what I do know is no matter how bad it gets, Jesus is victorious. Jesus won a victory over sin, over death, over hell. And if you belong to him, that victory is yours. And so the good news of the gospel that Mark is proclaiming is that we need not worry how dark it gets. We need not despair at how dark it gets because Jesus is the victorious son of God. And so in the prologue, we get this brief glimpse of the identity of Jesus. He's the promised son of God. He's the divine son of God. He's the powerful son of God. He's the obedient son of God. And he's the victorious son of God. And Mark gives us all of this information as backstory before we enter into the main narrative. But there's something else going on here more than just background information. He's doing something that I like to call heroic irony. So if if you like to watch like superhero movies or maybe even kung fu movies. Here's one of the fun parts about this. 
is seeing the, the superhero or maybe the kung fu master kind of living in their secret identity. Like they're just living in a normal life, hiding their abilities, hiding their powers. Just everybody thinks they're normal. And then inevitably what happens is some situation comes, some threat. Either someone else is in trouble or someone challenges the superhero or kung fu master. And then what is the fun part for us watching this or reading about this? We get to see how is this person with this incredible ability and power going to respond in these situations? It's fun for us as the reader or the the person watching the movie because we're like, wow, we know that they can do some stuff. We we know that they have power and ability. How are they going to respond? How are they going to save the day? How are they going to overcome evil? And, And so Mark gives us a glimpse of who Jesus is to set up some heroic irony for us. Because what do we know as the reader or as the observer that the people actually in the story don't? They don't fully comprehend who they're dealing with. They don't fully comprehend the power that is before them. And so they're blown away. They don't get it. But we get to see what happens. We have that knowledge. And so as readers of this gospel, Mark wants to say, hey, look, I'm giving you a glimpse about who Jesus is. And I want you to watch the irony that takes place as Jesus, the son of God himself, interacts with these normal people, interacts with these situations of sickness and death and demon possession. How is Jesus going to respond to crippled and blind men and dead little girls? How is Jesus going to respond to supernaturally strong, demon-possessed men? How is Jesus going to respond to tax collectors and Pharisees and religious people who oppress others with their religion? How is Jesus going to respond to being mocked and beaten and crucified? Well, there's this wonderful irony, there's this wonderful tension that Mark is setting up for us. But it also is meant to call us into question. It's meant to call our expectations into question because as we see these things unfold, does Jesus do what we think he's going to do? Does he say what we think he's going to say? Is this who we expected the Son of God to be? And so in many ways, we need to understand and and see ourselves in the midst of the narrative, recognizing that Jesus is going to challenge our assumptions. He's going to challenge our expectations. He's going to blow up what we expect the Son of God to do. But that is good news. So that is the purpose of the prologue. That is what Mark is up to in this wonderful, wonderful gospel. So as we turn the corner home, what should our response be? What should our response be in light of who Jesus is? Well, Mark tells us, or rather Jesus tells us straight up in verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent and believe. In light of the truth that Jesus is the promised son of God, the divine son of God, the powerful son of God, the obedient son of God, and the victorious son of God, the call in our lives is to repent, to turn from our sin, to turn from our rebellion, to turn from our kingdoms and our agendas, to to stop constructing a Jesus made in our own image and turn to the true Christ and believe in him. Put all of our hope, all of our chips, all of our faith in him, trusting in his life and his death and his resurrection for us, believing that he can save and renew and restore, believing that he is the resurrected and reigning victorious savior. And when he comes back, he's going to fully restore his creation. See, the only message to a great victory is to believe and rejoice and rest in it, to worship and to celebrate that it's done, 
it's finished. God has accomplished salvation for us. We don't have to earn this. We don't have to perform. We, we don't have to meet some sort of standard. All we need to do is turn from ourselves and put our trust in Christ. So church, this is what I want to happen as we go through the gospel of Mark. I want more and more for us to fall in love with Christ, more and more for us to turn from our sin and grow in our faith, to be shaped and formed in our minds and our hearts by the true Jesus so that we can be set free. Do you know that that's what Jesus is after? Your salvation, your freedom, your joy. And so let us get a bigger and bigger glimpse of who Christ is as we go through the gospel of Mark. And to that end, I want to close by reading a quote from a far better preacher than me. I'm not going to put the quote up on the board. I'm just going to read it. I just want you to listen to this beautiful description of who Jesus is. This comes from Dr. S.M. Lockridge. The Bible says, my king, he's the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's the sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. Do you know him? He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the leper. He forgives sinners. He discharged debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent and he beautifies the meek. Do you know him? He's the key of knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you, but he's indescribable. That's my king. He's incomprehensible, he's invincible, and he's irresistible. The heavens can't contain him, let alone some man explain him. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't get him off your hands. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. That's our king. Amen.